for God, for country, for truth, for justice, for the republic, neocrusader.com. And thank you for joining me today. Today is a very, very special episode, um, episode 7. And I'd originally, on episode 7, wanted to do a an episode uh, referring to the, the seven churches. And um, it didn't work out that way. God had sort of moved me to, uh, to speak about uh, the, you know, the, the things that occurred. Um, during the you know during Christ's last days and uh, the crucifixion and uh, you know it, it, in, today we are seeing an absolute just absolute onslaught of uh, persecution against Christians. Uh, you know Palm Sunday we had a um, an attack um, a terrorist attack and. Uh, in Egypt, and a lot of Christians are, are canceling their services. Um, an Australian man and his girlfriend were uh, were beaten up by uh, four Arabic men and, and their girlfriends uh, on a train in, in Sydney uh, just for wearing a cross. The, they ripped the cross from the man, beat him, and uh, stomped on the cross all while um, all while officers, uh, transit officers, stood by from a safe space and watched. And um, even in China, we're seeing that um, the uh, the persecution of Christians is is uh, ramping up there as they're installing cameras in uh, in Christian churches and the 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 um, the, uh, the heads of the church, the pastors over there, the uh, the the ones that that uh, felt moved to stand up, they were they were dragged off and beaten and uh, hospitalized for their for their uh, uh, standing up, so we're we're seeing a lot of, of persecution, a lot of people, uh, you know, canceling services just for fear of, uh, you know, ramifications for for those who would um, would persecute people um, for 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 Christ, but but that's not how we're going to do it here. Um, that's not what we do. We are going to uh, we're going to have an awesome episode. I am. Joined once again by uh, with uh, 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 a man who's uh, quickly becoming a favorite here, uh, Pastor Stephen Stover with LifePoint Ministries. And uh, Stephen, thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me. We uh, we uh, uh, like I said, I had uh, mentioned maybe to you about talking about the seven churches, but um, that, it, it just sort of I was sort of moved, and and God said, no, that's that's not really what we want to do today. <laughs> so. Um, he, I, I feel uh, very strongly that you're going to be the man to uh, to deliver the words he wants to say. So uh, you know, two or more are gathered in his name. So uh, I think it's going to be a powerful episode. So um, I guess with that, you know, uh, we we talked about uh, you know the persecution of Christians, and uh, you know it's that's nothing new. But you know, today we're going to talk about uh, the most important event. In all of human history, and that was the uh, what what Christ did for us on Calvary. So, uh, with that, I'm I'm going to let you take it from there. Well, Sean, I'd like to start by by again thanking you for having me on. We uh, enjoyed the last time we was on, and really enjoyed that. And uh, I believe that we'll have a good service here. I believe that the Spirit of the Lord will will be in this. I've um, when you called me and asked me, I just kind of didn't do honestly any studying on it. 
today, uh, just trying to meditate on the Word in my mind, and I felt like the presence of the Lord was really going to be in this, and I really feel like that it'll touch people that hear it. And uh, I don't know how you can not be touched by talking about what Jesus done for us. And uh, well, that's certainly a name that the world hates. That's why the persecution is going on now. But to the the enemy is, I'm just blunt, you you know me, the enemy is stupid. He, he doesn't realize, and I'm talking about the devil, that's our enemy, it's not flesh and blood. He doesn't realize that whenever he comes against the church, all through history, it makes the church stronger. So, that we will go on and have church, we're not going to fear. See, if the enemy can get us to fear assembling together in the name of Jesus, they don't have to have terror attacks. They just have accomplished their mission by placing fear in the hearts of God's children. And uh, I believe there's 365 fear knots in the Word of God, one for every day of the week. And that's, I'm going to grab a hold of one, and I won't fear. We'll just go ahead and go on with this. And um, talking about the path and the, the things that happened to Jesus on his way to the cross, the last days before the cross. It's hard for me to talk about that without going to Genesis chapter 3. I think it starts in 24, when Adam and Eve sinned, and he drove man out of the garden. It says, and it uses a word that is plural, it says that he placed cherubims at the east of the garden, not to keep man out. And that's very important that we know that. And uh, people preach it that the cherubims was there to keep man out, and that's not what it was for. And it uses the word plural, cherubims. But then it uses a singular word. That singular word, it says, and a flaming sword. Not swords, sword. Now, from the get-go, people need to realize what I am. I am a Jesus man. I believe everything is in Jesus. All power in heaven and earth. There were cherubims placed there, but one sword. There's only one God. We've mentioned before how the different cultures had worshipped several gods, and there's one God. We understand that here. Now, the sword is the word of God. And we have to hear this part. In order for man to get to the tree of life, which is Jesus, he said, I am the bread of life. He is not, he does not just have power to resurrect. He said, I am the resurrection. So he is that tree of life that is for the church. It's for the whole world. He's the tree of life. And in order to get to him, we have to go through that flaming sword. That flaming sword is the word of God. The Bible says that it is sharp and powerful. It's quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So to get to our tree of life, we've got to go through the pages of the Word. We've got to live it. We've got to measure up to it and do exactly what it says. Boy, that's powerful. It's just what God puts in His Word for us. Now, you picture in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, you had the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And I'll tell you what that tree is. That tree is not an apple tree. Not an olive tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil is a fig tree. In the book of Jeremiah, the Bible teaches us in Jeremiah chapter 24, verse 1 through 3, he said, Behold, I see two baskets in, in the temple, front of the temple. One was a basket of good figs. They were very good. I'm kind of quoting a little bit here. He said, And one was evil, very evil, that could not be eaten. They were so evil. The baskets represented that which was good and that which was evil. And if you'll read that whole chapter, it goes on into talking about people having a knowledge of right and wrong and not doing what's right. And when Adam and Eve sinned, the very first thing they'd done, they realized they were naked and they took fig leaves. So they were there next to the fig tree. It stands to reason they pulled the leaves off and they made themselves aprons. So now, and the reason I said that now, it was a fig tree that was the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and then there was a literal tree of life in the Garden of Eden, but now Jesus is our tree of life. He put the cherubims and a flaming sword to get to the tree of life. You had to go through it. It didn't say to keep man out in the Genesis 3. It actually says to protect the way of the tree of life. 
And if Jesus is our tree of life, we are supposed to be like him, that this mind that is in Christ be also in you. The word of God is given to us to protect the way of the tree of life. Because if the church does not live what Jesus wants us to live, then we are distorting his life in the eyes of other people, in the eyes of the world. So the word is given to us to keep the way. That way people can look at us and say, that is Jesus living through them. That's the Holy Ghost living through them. It keeps the way of Jesus. People know he's holy because they look at the church. The church is holy. People know that he is good and he is loved because they look at the church and the church loves. So in the garden, you had the fig tree, which was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And this is very interesting. There was a man who was the greatest biblical historian of all times. I don't go online and print off messages. I don't believe in that. You can print messages off that some devil gets on there and writes, and people get up in a church and preach them, and they don't know what they're preaching. So I, I believe if I'm going to listen to preaching, I want to hear it through spirit-filled people. So, But there's a man, his name was Joseph Ben Manathias. He was a Hebrew general. He was a general in the military. And he went to war with Rome. There was an emperor at that time. His name was Titus. They captured him. He actually surrendered to their army. He was surrounded. The emperor, Titus, loved this man as a brother and gave him his name and changed his name from Joseph ben Manathias to Flavius Titus Josephus. That name will ring a bell with several. Um, Joseph ben Manathias. He actually wrote that it was Noah's son, Shem that took the skull of Adam and buried it in a mountain. Now, you'll know where I'm going with this. As they take Jesus to Golgotha, the word tells us that it was the place of the skull. Mm. Now, historians will say that it was the place of the skull because the mountain looks like a skull, and it doesn't look like a skull at all. If it was because the mountain looked like a skull, it would look like that now. You see, the flood would change landscapes and move rocks and move dirt and add rivers and creeks and streams and ponds where there was none. The great flood during Noah's time, the seventh generation of man, it would have changed the landscape then. So if it looked like a skull during Jesus' time, after the flood, it would look like a skull now, and it doesn't. But Flavius Titus Josephus says that Shem actually took the skull of Adam and buried it in that mountain. Therefore, it is the place of the skull. Now, historians will not say that. Bible scholars will not say that. But I tend to lean towards what Josephus writes. So, Jesus, they they lead him up this mountain, the place of the skull. And as he goes, if you'll read the day before, he is at that same place. He is probably on that same mountain, about a mile and a half away from where he's crucified, and he sees a fig tree. And it says in the Word that he sees this fig tree, and it was not yet the time of harvest. It should have had figs, but it didn't. It was not producing figs. The tree had green leaves on it. You would have looked at it and said, that tree's beautiful, but there was no strength. There was no no fruit on that tree. It didn't bear fruit. Sometimes the church world is like that. They look big and beautiful, but they're bearing no fruit. Well, that would preach in any church, wouldn't it? <laughs> He sees sees this tree, and he curses it. Then they see it later, and they are amazed because this is not just a little bush. This is a huge tree that's cursed. He cursed that fig tree. Now, they're walking him up this mountain, the place of the skull, where Adam's skull, the first man, Adam, his skull is buried there. Can you picture Jesus Christ being the tree of life? hanging on this mountain, a perfect picture of Eden at his crucifixion. The tree of life, Jesus Christ, hanging on this mountain. Not far from where his feet is, is the skull of Adam buried. About a mile and a half away, the very tree that brought sin into the world, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, is cursed. Boy, he's powerful, isn't he? he is. And he tied everything together so good for us. And yet people will argue. The word's not real. They'll argue God isn't real. Jesus was just a good man or a prophet. But boy, we know better than that. And a perfect picture of Eden there. Now, in the book of John, chapter 13 and 22, I wanted to go there 
just to show you when he went to the cross what he was doing. The Bible refers to Jesus as the second man, Adam. So the first man, Adam, that sin entered into is buried there. The tree of knowledge of good and evil, cursed, and our tree of life there, hanging on a cross. And as Moses would lift up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, and here he is, whoever looks upon him, as they would look upon that serpent and be healed by the serpent bite, whoever looks upon Jesus is healed from their sins. So, in the book of John, chapter 13 and 22, I, I read this, and it's almost not, the situation is not comical, but the way that Peter handles himself is. They're sitting there, and John records the Last Supper in this chapter, and he is talking about how that Jesus is there, and John is laying on his bosom. It's John, the beloved, the one that Jesus loved, and the one that loved Jesus. He's just laying against him. And evidently, Jesus loved Judas, and really loved Judas. Now, Judas had to be, had to look at the positioning of the apostles. John, the one that loved Jesus, and Jesus loved is on one side. Directly sitting beside of John is Peter. But sitting on the other side of Jesus had to be Judas, because Jesus made it clear, the one that betrays me will dip his hands with me. So in the, the, the bowl that they washed their hand in had to leave Jesus and immediately go to Judas, which would have been on his other side. That tells you Judas's rank, because his rank in the twelve, he was a powerful man with them. Jesus loved him, had high hopes for him. I don't believe Judas was born to do what he did. The Bible makes it clear. No man born of a woman is born to go to hell. It says that hell was not created for man. It was created for Satan and his angels. Now, that position had to be filled. If Judas didn't do it, another man would have stepped right into that position and done it. But I don't believe that from the beginning, Judas was ordained to go to hell. He wasn't ordained to do that. I know Jesus called him a devil. But he also called Peter, looked at Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. So he's he's not calling them that, but what was controlling them at that time. And the Bible tells us that at that time, whenever Jesus said, whoever dips with me, it's recorded that immediately the devil entered into Judas. It entered into him then because he made his mind up he was going to do it. That's a good lesson there. Just because sin enters our mind don't mean that we're wrong. But when it enters our heart, and then we do it, we go forth with it, that's when the devil enters in. So, But Peter, he's sitting on the other side of John. He leans over to John, and almost, I used to do this with my with my brothers. I'd be like, Mom and Dad, they're going to tell me no. But if you ask them, they'll let you do it. They'll say okay. So Peter does that. He leans over to John because he knew that Jesus really loved John. He said, John, you ask him who's going to betray him. And John did. And Jesus answered him. He said, the one that dips with me. And, and there was Judas. And he, he dipped his hands with Jesus. And everyone knew. And just just what a sad picture that was. You got a picture in that scripture, the heading above in everyone's Bible. It'll either say the Last Supper or Jesus eats the Last Supper with the Twelve. And supper time. At that point, it would have probably been anywhere from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. And they're eating. You know how it is when you eat and you get your belly full and the sun's going down. That's about sleeping time there, isn't it? Yeah. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane. The strange thing to this, Jesus walked to the Garden of Gethsemane hundreds of times. He's been there hundreds of times. It was a, a place of commerce. It was a place, that name in Hebrew actually means press. It's where the press was. The Bible teaches us how many times Jesus would resort to the Mount of Olives. He would take his apostles apart and go to the Mount of Olives. That's where he would uh, find rest at. He could get away from the crowds and at the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is where the olives grew. The olive was the oil that was put in the myrrh. It was put in the in the, the, the anointing oil, the myrrh and the, the olive oil that was put in there. 
It was the anointing oil from the olives. He would go to where the anointing oil was produced time and time again. He would go there. But this time, he I wonder how many times he'd actually open the gate and walk through the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where the press was. That's where they, they mashed all of the olives. And he walked right past that press, knowing that one time in his life at the end, that it would be him that would be going through that and that he would be crushed and that his body would be broken and bruised for us. And that's the lesson for us. We can walk past a place and that we're going to have problems and walk past and he, Jesus does that for new converts time and time again. We, you see people as they first get saved and it seems like immediately um, there's a protection around them to where the devil can't come against them full force. But later in their Christian walk, they, it seems like God allows us to go through something. And what that literally is, we walk past the press and go to where the oil's produced. He allows us to go to where that anointing is time and time again. And Jesus himself did that. But this time he didn't. This time he goes to Gethsemane and he falls down on his knees and his disciples, they just ate. It's about an hour, hour and a half after they eat and he's praying in the garden and he's toiling there all night and he comes and he finds them sleeping. He doesn't really criticize them. He just, couldn't you just wait with me? He's really going through it and they should be sleepy by all accounts. They're not going home at nighttime and sleeping in their beds. They sleep out under trees and on rocks and hide for, and trying to save themselves and hide from, from the Jewish leaders and from Roman leaders. And this seems like something that would come natural. They're sleeping. Jesus, he goes in there and he carries and he's, that flesh is tore up and the Bible says his sweat becomes as great drops of blood. And it's not comparing the size of his drops of sweat. We know that in history there was a man that was sentenced to be executed and his nerves become so tore up inside of him that there was a vein, I forget the name of it, a vessel, but it actually allows blood to leak out of it when the nerves is tore up and he actually had blood mingled with his sweat. This is in history. And Jesus is in now in Gethsemane and this is what's going on with him. And it's not the fear of death. It's not that at all. He didn't care to be put on the cross. When he says, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. It wasn't that he was afraid of dying. and He was afraid of being tortured. It was not that at all. He knew at age 12 when he goes into the temple and he opens up the scripture and reads the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel. He knew then at age 12 what was going to happen to his body. He knew he was going to be tortured. He was going to be killed. He knew that. And it did not make him sweat blood. If it was going to tear the nerves up of someone to go through that, it would tear up a 12-year-old quicker than it would someone that's 33 and a half years old. Sure. So... The reason his sweat becomes as great drops of blood, he took on the sin of the whole world. And the way that he took on the sin of the whole world, you cannot take on someone's faults without taking on their worry. Um, you can't take on someone's sin without taking on the effects of that sin. The Bible makes it clear that he who knew no sin becomes sin. Jesus, when he was in the garden, he knew exactly what it felt like, what these drug addicts are going through and how their nerves get tore up, even though he was never addicted to it, never sinned. He was the spotless lamb. He knew what these alcoholics feel like. Not that he was craving alcohol, but his nerves was tore up because he took on that sin. His nerves were shot. So his nerves, they were shot so much inside of his body and he didn't do it for one. We know people that's on drugs and It'll do one person like that. It'll make them almost seem like they're going crazy. Jesus done it for all mankind during his day, from the beginning of creation all the way to now, during our time. Jesus took on the sins of everyone that's listening to this. He took on the sins. If you have people that are on drugs, 
And you might hear people say, Jesus don't know what it's like to feel this. He understands what it feels like millions of times over again because he took it all for the whole world. Now, you got to look at the time frame this is now. Now it's growing early in the morning, about 3 o'clock in the morning. The soldiers come after him. You can go to your towns the, where you live, and at 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm not putting people down. It's just the way life is now. If you go through your major towns at 2, 3 o'clock in the daytime, you're going to see people that's working, people that's transiting back and forth to work, getting lunch, getting dinner. But at 3 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning, the crowd changes. That's when the drug dealers are still good people out. But at 3 o'clock in the morning, you'll be less apt to talk to a stranger in your town than you will at 2 or 3 o'clock in the day. Sure. Because that's when what society would view as the worst of the sinners are out. So when they come and they get Jesus and they lead him through the streets, that's who is there lined up and down those streets is that 3 a.m. crowd. The ones that the world now would look at and say, they've gone too far. <laughs> Jesus can't save them. They've, they've done too much. That's the first crowd he was exposed to. That's the one that he come to give his life for. There's no, no, no way man can go too far. That his blood, what he done at the cross is more powerful than what anyone can do away from it. There's that much power in the blood of Jesus. That's the first crowd that he encounters. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, they're tucked in their warm beds, probably got visions of what's going to happen. They know what's happening. They're probably dreaming about it. All their problems are over. They get out of bed. About daylight, they go, and now this is the crowd that Jesus is dealing with. You know, he had more success with that 3 a.m. crowd. Those were the ones that were spitting on him and throwing things at him and mocking him at first. But those were the ones that, when the word says that 5,000 was added to the church, it wasn't 5,000 Sadducees and Pharisees. It was 5,000 of the 3 a.m. crowd. They get him, and he goes and he stands before the leaders. And as the prophet says, as a lamb led before the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. As a lamb led before the shears, he stood there. He didn't open his mouth. He didn't have to. He could have at any time called 10,000 legions of angels to come and get him. But he doesn't. They take him and they put a crown of thorns on his head. I have a brother, and I live here in West Virginia, and this sounds a little odd. But I have a brother that's 10 years older than I am. He lives out west. He is a rancher. That's what he does. He's done that for 30, 31 years of his life. And for two years in a row, years ago, I went out there. <coughs> where he lived. And for me, it was playing. For him, it was hard work. But it soon become hard work. I was out there for two weeks, and they were branding cattle. we get on those horses, and there was no grass. And the horses would eat, and the cows would eat off of something that's called mesquite briars. Those briars actually grow a bean, mm -hmm. and that's what the animals eat. I learned real fast why those cowboys wear them leather shafts because those briars and the mesquite briars will cut through your pants like scissors. I didn't have the shafts and it ruined every pair of pants I put on out there and would ride through. And we think about how they put a crown of thorns on Jesus' head. It wasn't like these little rose bushes we have here in West Virginia. It wasn't that at all. As a matter of fact, those desert briars have a little bit of poison in them almost comparable to a beast thing. And I know the mesquite briars do. If they if they pierce through your skin, you can swell a little bit from that. And I can picture them getting, and there's briars in Israel. And my brother Dale even told me, and out west, he said that there's briars that are worse than the mesquite briars. I just didn't get a chance to show you them. You can break the vine that the briar's on, but you can't break the briar itself. It's real thick and very sharp and powerful. 
this is what Jesus is dealing with. They make a crown of thorns. And it's not like these little rosebush briars. And they make him a crown of thorns. They would have had to have taken a board and laid it on top of the crown of thorns and shoved it down on his head. And I could picture as they'd done that that it's scissoring through the flesh of his head and skin overlapping his eyebrows and laying over his ears and just being a mess of blood and skin ripping off of his head. I know it's not a beautiful picture to talk about, but this is what our Lord and Savior done for us. They put a rod or a reed in his right hand, one of the Gospels writes. They put it in his right hand and they take it out of his hand and they hit him over the head with it. The reason they done this, it's hard for man to wrap their mind around it, but Satan knew what it was. In the book of Revelations, it says he's seen New Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven, adorned as a bride, and it gives the measurements of New Jerusalem. It is not a city at all. The measurements is not measured in distance of miles. It is measured in distance in the word of God, but when it uses this word that it is a, adorned as a bride, that tells us that it isn't. I know this will not be found online, but it's it's telling us that it is the bride of Christ. He measures the bride of Christ. And what this means is that there's a certain amount of souls. People write books and they tell you this is when the Lord's coming back and uh, there's puzzles in the Bible that can be unraveled on the this day. And people will tell you that God showed them in a vision or told them he's coming back at this day. They're liars. I'm blunt. The Bible says that no man knows the day nor the hour. But I can tell you that he said that he measured New Jerusalem with a golden rod or a golden reed. That means that when he measured it, he's measuring the souls. And I can tell you when he's coming back right here real quick. I can't tell you the day nor the hour, but when the last soul goes to the altar, our Lord and Savior is returning. We know that he has a select number of Jews, 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. That's the way God works. He said, I'm God and I change not. What makes man think he's going to change with the church? He has a certain number for the church that no man knows. That's why people say, well, Jesus isn't God because he said only my Father in heaven knows the number. That's not what he's talking about. God will not allow himself to know if you're going to go to heaven or if you're going to go to hell. That's called free will that he gives to man. It's up to us. He said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. That means, he said, whosoever will, let him come. That means that it is up to us, not up to him. He already paid the price. Mm -hmm. It's up to us. So that reed, that rod, resembles, and what it is, it's a type of measuring souls. Jesus come to this earth to build a church. They put that rod in his right hand. And they take it from him. The reason they put that rod in his right hand, the Bible teaches us that the high priest Aaron, that they would put blood on his right ear, the tip of his right thumb, and the Bible uses the word great toe, which is big toe, on his right foot. They would put oil in his left hand. He would take that right hand, and that right hand, that right side represented the sacrifice, the blood sacrifice. So whenever Stephen, they stoned Stephen, and he looked up into heaven and seen Jesus at the right hand of God, don't get confused about the Godhead. He's seen that blood sacrifice on the right side is exactly what he's seen. So they put that rod in the right hand of Jesus. Hmm. And putting that rod in the right hand of Jesus, they're mocking his sacrifice. The soldiers don't know why they're doing it. Satan does. They're mocking that sacrifice of Jesus. You come to build a church, and they take it from him and hit him over the head with it. As if to say, this is what's become of your church. The amount of souls that you said you were going to save, it will never happen. But little did they know that he was the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And when he said something's going to happen, it's going to happen. And man can't stop it. Satan can't stop it. He has all power. He said, I'm God and besides me, there is none other. It's not a battle of good and evil. It is a battle of Satan versus us. God's not in a battle. He's God. Nobody can stand before him. He's already won the battle, but what he does is equip us with a weapon in his back of that sword, which is the word of God. Wow. They lead him from there. They pluck his beard out. 
His face from these briars would have been swollen. Stephen, nobody can go through what Job went through with. Job had boils on him. And the term is actually called elephantitis. His body would have been swollen so much that he wouldn't have even looked like a man. And his head would have been swollen. Jesus took that on. People don't realize this, but from those briars, his head would have been swollen so much. It's not like the pictures that we would see on the on, on that, that we see out hanging on people's walls and stuff. It's nothing like that at all. Sure, he was bleeding. He was in agony. But that head, it would have been swollen so much. The pressure, just you know, when you have swelling in your body, you feel that pressure and the pain from it. This is in his head, around his ears, his eyes, his temples. He plucked his beard out. They would have been ripping patches of skin off of his face from doing that and bleeding from that. He's hanging there. They're mocking him. And now that the scripture would be fulfilled that a bone of his body would not be broken. They go to break because it's time now. They have to get him off of the cross. They would not to go against their own customs. And they break the legs of the two malefactors, one on the left side and one on the right. And they get to Jesus. He had died already. That it would be fulfilled. That his bones would not be separated. That is a type. See, his body cannot be separated. The church is now the body of Christ. And that body cannot be separated. That's why the Bible teaches unity so much. We've got to be in unity one with another. It don't matter what state you're in, what city you're in. People that are bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus are your brothers and sisters. And we are to love them and care for them and pray for them. The body cannot be separated. Wow. They pierce his side. And out flows blood and water. His last words, he said, it is finished. When it is finished, a great miracle happened. The Bible talks about an earthquake that happens. If an earthquake happened right now in my home, if it happened around my home, my foundations, my walls, my ceilings, my floors would crack and bust. During this earthquake, what happened? The graves busted open. And in the temple, the temple did not fall. Could you picture an earthquake and the only thing that tears in your home from an earthquake is the curtains that is hanging on your window? What a miracle that would be. Absolutely. An earthquake happens and the only damage to the temple is the veil that is before the Ark of the Covenant, the dwelling place of God that is seven inches thick of animal hide, rips from top to bottom, and that mercy seat is exposed. And yet the foundations, the floors, the walls, the ceiling is still intact. But the cart, the, the, the animal skin, the veil tears. What a miracle that is. Absolutely. That, um, if I could for just a moment, um, one of the... Uh, one of the things, uh, speaking of supernatural events um, like that, because, it, like you said, there's there's no explanation for for that other than the power of God. But also, I've heard people talking about the darkness that covered the land during the crucifixion and how, you know, he he, there were some uh, some events that. With the, I guess he was, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but he was, he was hung on the cross at approximately 9 a.m. He was he was bound to the cross, and which would be um, the time of the Jewish morning sacrifice, and that that would fall in line, I guess, with that. And then he hung there for approximately six hours, and. At 3 p.m., he passed, which is traditionally the time of the evening sacrifice, and and the symbolism of of what Christ was and and how he was that perfect sacrifice for all of mankind. Um, you know, and on top of that, he he um, he basically died 
on the Passover. He was buried on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He rose, I believe, uh, on the the first fruits, and um, which which is a promise to come, basically. And um, even even um, the the spirit, uh, the pouring out of the spirit, occurred on uh, on Pentecost. Um, so, you know, I, I think that, and and I talk a lot of synchronicity, and and I, I think God speaks to us in ways if we'll just be quiet and listen. And uh, am I wrong in, in that? Is that is that basically? I mean, is there a um, is there a a deeper meaning there? Was was that basically? Am I am I off on that? Mm-hmm. A, a songwriter wrote a song about a little boy in Egypt, wanting worry and saying, "Father, will you please check and see if the blood is still there." And the father says, now, son, you don't have to worry. The blood is there to stay. The winds may blow, the rains may come, but it can't just wash away. And when he died, it it, it, it is symbolizing that. The, the blood, the Passover, the, the death angel. Now, when it grew dark, you got a picture when Jesus said it's finished and he gave up the ghost. You cannot kill him. Right. They didn't take his life. He gave it. But the Bible says that he went into the heart of the earth. That's hell. Mm-hmm. Now, if you take the light of the world, even in heaven, he's the light of the world. But you put the light of the world, that's the first time hell had real light, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's a true story. You, that's true. You take the light of the world out of the world, and now he is in the depths of hell, preaching to those that was in captive during Noah's day. It grows dark. And that's a symbol, a symbol on that too. He, 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 the world grows dark. And he goes into the depths of hell to preach to those that was in captive during Noah's time. See, Noah preached you're going to die in a flood. He never preached hell. So for the blood of Jesus to reach all men, he had to do that. Right. He had to. Which shows us that he's not just God of heaven and earth, he's God of hell. We look at it and think, well, that's Satan's territory. Satan's a God of hell. He's not in hell. He's roaming to and fro on the earth. Wherever God shows up, he's king of it. He's king of it. So, and he frees those that was in captive during Noah's time. Now, during the first fruits, the first resurrection, those souls come up and the graves bust open. And it was those that was in captive during Noah's time. And just this is when the Bible speaks of the first resurrection, the first fruits. And everything that he'd done, exactly what you said, everything that he'd done, he typed it together. And I've heard several times you can't pull a thread in Genesis that it does not fucker revelations. It is all very well tied and knit together the word of God is right now with also you had mentioned that Jesus took on the sin of the entire world and that darkness in in the Bible and other places darkness was a symbol also of judgment as well if if am I am am I off on that was it could did it also was there also a, a dual meaning with that where he was on the cross, and he had taken on the sin of the entire world. And that darkness that came was, because he had taken that sin on, a, a he was actually, even though he, he, he was, was he, was that a symbol of the judgment of the sin he had taken on? Um, is, is that, is that maybe, would that also be representative? Yes, the he was judged, even though he never sinned. That body was judged for our sins. In Revelations, it says that he would give us a stone with a name, a new name written on it. Yes. A white stone with a new name written on it. And the stone, the color of the stone was a symbol of judgment. If you went and you was tried and they gave you a black stone, that means you're being judged, you're going to suffer the penalty. But if they gave you a white stone, it means you may have been guilty, but you was acquitted. Or either you're not guilty, 
But if this would be for people that would be put into the prisons. They would be released. They'd be given a white sun. If someone seen them out on the street, well, how did you get out of prison? Did you escape or something happened? They could show that white stone. It shows that it's not a black stone. It's a white stone. They had been acquitted for their wrong. They didn't have to pay the penalty for it. Hmm. And well, certainly the name written would be Jesus. He's the one that paid it. But the black stone represented that they were going to be, they would have to suffer the judgment of it. They would have to suffer the penalty of it. Well, we know that Jesus did. It turned black. He suffered, but that light of the world left the world. But see, that's what's going to happen. See, Jesus, that's how he lives in his church. He's in his church. That's Jesus. That's God in us. And during the rapture of the church, this would uh, be hard for people to understand in in depth because I know Hollywood gets a hold of this stuff and they make movies about left behind and stuff. But see, when the church is taken out of here, the Spirit of God is taken out of here. Mm. And when the Spirit of God is ta- taken out of here, the Bible talks about how in Revelations it's going to turn dark. So it's right back to what you're talking about. That Spirit of God leaves and now the judgment of God falls. Right. And it's that punishment for sin. You know, um, I, before we started the show, um, you were talking about um, the the way that they they did Christ, the 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 torment that they did, and and one of the things that they did was the, um, you know, passing the the vinegar onto him and uh, to to drink. And uh, you know, I, before we before we began, I sort of mentioned the the vinegar, and and uh, I do, and it's it's not a day goes by. I, I take it faithfully, but not a day goes by, not a spoon goes into my mouth that I don't think of because it has its benefits, but at the same time, it is very 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 hard to take, and um, so not a day goes by that I don't think about what they did to him and, and, and how he took that on. And, uh, the vinegar was mixed with something, and what it was to do was to deaden the senses. It would almost be like a painkiller. Oh, okay. I thought maybe, I got you. I thought maybe it, it had to do with, with um, being uh, a torment uh, of him. But that, that, that makes sense. That does. And later on, he would say, I first. And they put just plain, I think... If I'm not mistaken, I believe they put plain vinegar on there mm-hmm. to give it to him when he was, when he thirsted, but he refused the medicine part. But the vinegar, yeah, I believe that vinegar provides a lot of uh, benefits for sure. Um, another thing, uh, just to uh, to touch upon this, because this is one thing that, and again, I, I have heard this a hundred times. Um, but the one thing that just never, it did not, you had mentioned the, the quake and how um, it, it says, And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. And then it says, And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Uh-huh. And for somebody who who catches things and and uh, you know the, the supernatural um, events that that are mentioned in the Bible, that just was amazing to me. That that uh, there's a reason for that. Okay, man cannot stand before the judgment of the throne of God with excuses. And if you'll remember, Lazarus died and was carried into Abraham's bosom, and the rich man died. And in hell he lifted up his eyes. Well, the rich man, they knew who he was talking about. The rich man is Judah. Mm-hmm. He said, I have five brothers. But Leah, his mother, had six children. Judah would have been the one that it was speaking of, and then his five brethren of his of that mother. And um, Lazarus represents, that name means he whom God helps. Lazarus, if you remember Lazarus, in another scripture. Lazarus dies. He'd been dead for four days. And Lazarus represents the Gentile church. He whom God helps. Four days in a prophetical sense is a type of 4,000 years. The Gentile church 
had been dead from the creation of time or from the fall of Adam up to this point for exactly 4,000 years. So the Lazarus, and then Lazarus is carried into Abraham's bosom. That is the Gentile church being grafted in, the adopted son, that wild olive branch being grafted in. It is the Gentile church. They knew what he was talking about. Boy, that's why they got so mad at him. Mm-hmm. But Lazarus, I mean, the rich man says, can you send a messenger? Could you send one back from the grave to tell my brethren not to come to this place? He said, if they'll not believe the prophets. So that was an excuse that, that, that he was saying that man would have. Could you send somebody to warn them? Wow. He did. Those graves busted open, and they went into the holy city, and they appeared unto many. That excuse had been wrote off, so they can no longer use that excuse. He called it, didn't and, he? <laughs> He called it, and all they done was marked it off as something that's unexplainable. Wow. They marked it off, and Jesus was right. He said they'll not receive it. He always And is. he did it. Yeah. One other thing that um, I think maybe is one of the most powerful um, points of the whole thing, even even really more powerful to me than, uh, you know, the, the graves bursting open and, and the saints returning um, to the living was that afterwards, um, in, uh, right after that, it says, Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, This truly, or truly, this was the Son of God. And I saw a passage, well, it's not a passage, but I, I saw something in the Bible that says, in a dream, I saw the Savior, and his back was bare, and there was a soldier lifting up his hand and bringing down an awful cat of nine tails. In a dream, I rose and grasped his arm to hold it back. And when I did, the soldier turned in astonishment and looked at me. And when I looked at him, I recognized myself. And isn't it amazing that that soldier, he had probably saw Jesus' interaction with Pilate. He had seen probably he had been witness to everything. And it was that centurion that was there crucifying Christ that was among the first to be saved. Yeah, that is... Can you imagine all those soldiers? Everyone that beat him and hung him on a cross and took his body off that cross. They had the blood of Jesus, the natural blood of Jesus, all over them. And it done nothing for them. It is that one you talked about. There's 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 always an exception to the crowd, isn't there? It's it's amazing. And and it just like I said, the the deeper the deeper I look, the the more more I see, I guess. Um it's amazing. It is. Hey, um, I believe it's in John chapter 20, Mary Magdalene. She goes to the tomb of Jesus, too, and there's angels in there. And I was reading this, and I actually preached a message on it a few nights ago, a week ago or so. And the placing of the angels in that tomb, one, it said, would have been where Jesus' head was, and the other one was where his feet was. And I read that. And man, it, it come to me differently than it ever has before. If you'll remember when Jesus was tempted of Satan, he said, cast thyself down, for it is written, he'd give his angels charge concerning thee, lest thou dash thy foot against the stone. The angels, there was angels that was in control of that body of Jesus to keep it from bleeding, to keep it from getting hurt. Can you picture Jesus when he's just a young boy and he goes outside and he's playing? The other kids can go home and say, Mommy, why isn't Jesus ever breaking a bone? Why isn't Jesus ever falling down and getting cut? That blood was so precious. Them angels were there to pick him up as he fell. They were there to protect him. They were there with him through it all. And those soldiers, I want everyone to hear this and get this, those soldiers did not see them. But when they carried that body of Jesus and laid him in the tomb, those angels that was protecting him, they literally laid that body on those angels. His head would have went on one of their laps. 
his feet would have went on the other lap, and they didn't even know who was in the tomb. They well, they Satan's thinking, I've got the victory. Those soldiers are thinking, we killed him, we're burying him, and they put him in that tomb, and there's them angels. They couldn't see him, but them angels are right there all alone. And now that body raises from the grave, victorious. Now that body is not flesh and blood as it was before. Those angels are not there to protect it. So he's out of the tomb and the angels are still in there, placed in that same position. Mary comes out and she sees Jesus and she don't recognize him. She's been with him as Mary Magdalene cast seven devils out of her. She should recognize him after three years. It was about a half year, I believe, into his ministry that he did this. She didn't recognize him. But he took, he took Peter, James, and John to a mountain called the Mount of Transfiguration, and he was transfigured before them. That don't mean he went into heaven. That means that he showed them who he was. His hair changes. There is a glow about his skin that wasn't there before. His clothes even changed. And he looks at him and says, tell this vision to no man until I'm taken away from you. And Peter did. Peter's first message, buddy, he tells him, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive. He knew who he was, didn't he? He, did. he said, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's him telling that vision. But Mary, who did, she didn't know him because she didn't see that transfigured Jesus. She didn't see it. That's why Jesus could appear with the two men on the road to Emmaus. They're going the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. He comes out of the tomb. They're going, he tells them to go to Jerusalem. But those men are going on the opposite direction. From Jerusalem. People do that when they feel God's let them down. They go the opposite way he wants them to. And he joins them and they don't recognize him because they never seen that transfigured Jesus. They didn't know him. Now, Peter comes out of hiding. He sits down with them in Jerusalem and they go there and he breaks bread with them. Their eyes were open. Their eyes were holding that they couldn't see him. They didn't recognize him. But Mary thought he was a gardener. Mm-hmm. And I thought when I read that word gardener, that's something else that really stuck out to me. Why would she think gardener? This is a tomb. It's tomb. Why would you think Gardner? What was the very first place that God created in the wow. Bible? Wow. The garden. Absolutely. Where was it that he come down and talked to the first man, Adam, in the cool of the day? No wonder the God of the universe, Mary turns around, looks at him, and supposes him to be a gardener. <laughs> Just something about him. Something about him. Absolutely. Stephen, that... Sean, before we get off of this, if it's all right with you, I would like for us to have prayer with anyone who would listen to this. I'm not going to prophesy and say someone's listening with this or that, but I believe in the power of prayer. I was actually going to ask you that. Um, so, so by all means, absolutely, sir. That's right. Lord, we come to you in the mighty name of Jesus. Lord, you know everyone that is listening to this all the ears that this will land upon. Lord, you know the problems that the people are going through with, those that are wrestling, whether they even believe in you or not, those that the devil's lying to, saying that the word of God is not real, that you, even your life and raising again on the third day is not real. Lord, those that are struggling in the relationship with their husband, leaving them, their wife leaving them, the doctor giving them bad news, Lord, I know that you are the same today, yesterday, and forever, and that you change not, and that you have all power. I ask you in your name, in the name of Jesus, to touch whoever listens to this. Lord, I pray that you'll saturate this podcast, Lord, with the Spirit of God. I pray, Lord, that whoever opens it up will be able to feel your presence, Lord. will smell the oil. Lord, I pray you'll touch them and move for them. In Jesus' name, Lord, be with Sean and touch him, touch his life, touch everything that he touches. Bless him, Lord. Bless him in his walk with you, Lord. In this podcast, I pray you'll use him. Lord, use this tool to reach people. Ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Yes, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you. Stephen, I want to close with one last thing, and then uh, we're going to tell people how to get in touch with you. And... um, I just want to point out one last thing. We had talked uh, at the beginning of the podcast about the persecution of Christians. And um, I I don't know if you caught it on Fox News, but um, on the 14th, they they were talking, uh, they released a, I guess, did an article on uh, a report that the Open Doors USA 
um, foundation had released about the 10 uh, most extreme countries for persecution of Christians. And isn't it funny that the number one place would be North Korea and the things that are coming upon them now and how through all their show of strength and through, especially on this weekend, how they're worshiping his grandfather and all of this pomp and they finally do launch that missile and it doesn't make it 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 is it is a flat show of power and and I I think that is um, I think they were 97 out of 100 ranked for um, you know on, on a scale of one to a hundred they got a 97 on persecution of Christians and I I think I think the judgment of, of the Lord um, I, I think that just is is a show that that it's it's not in those who don't believe but but those who do believe and um, yes. There are leaders in other countries that don't believe in Jesus, that don't believe in God. They, right. But they're probably pretty good people. They just don't know. They need to be taught. They need to have scriptures open to them. There's leaders like this leader in North Korea that doesn't just know he's filled with the devil. Oh. And the devil has always persecuted Christians. Yeah. The devil has always hated the church. That's why he's doing it. That's why this country is ranked way up there in persecution. Right. Because it, it, you got a, you got a devil leading it. That sounds hard, but it's the truth. Well, sometimes, sometimes the truth hurts, doesn't it? It does. Stephen, how do people find you? How do people get in touch with you? Um... Well, I can be found online. It's a uh, pastor Stephen Stover spelled with a V. That is actually my email. Stephen with a V dot Stover at ymail dot com. It's the letter Y. It is a a Yahoo mail, and there's another one, Stover KKS at gmail dot com. And uh, I'm on Twitter. It's Stephen Stover, and it'll be Pastor Stephen Stover. There'll be a, a nice little picture there of me and my wife. I just celebrated our twentieth wedding anniversary. It's my my first and only love. Congratulations. Thank you. And I will, um, I will link um, all of uh, Pastor Stover's contact information and uh, Twitter and everything uh, underneath the the media player on the podcast um, on the website. Um, so if you're listening to this on iTunes or or um, Google Play, go to uh, neocrusader.com forward slash podcast and. Uh, episode seven and you'll be able to to find all that information there um tell us about the the church and uh how um you know um as far as uh the services and times and everything like that if uh, anybody would want to join we have sunday school there at 10 a.m on sunday morning and church service that evening at 6 30 p.m tomorrow we are actually doing an easter play we did it um last sunday and it really got a lot of good feedback from it. And I had some people that could not make it that really wanted to see it, so we're doing it again tomorrow. And then uh, Wednesday at 7 p.m. is our midweek service. And then at 6.30 p.m. on Thursday is youth group. We have a very good youth group, um, really good Sunday school teachers. They um, work with the youth for a long time. They're really good at what they do and they love the youth. That makes that makes a difference there. It does. It does. Um, on Twitter now, if if people find me on that, I do. Sometimes it takes a little while um, through the emails, getting a lot of emails and stuff. But I do respond to every email I get through Twitter and then through the email addresses I gave you. I, I respond to all of those. Very good. Well, Stephen, thank you so much. Um, you uh, you're getting a following among my my listeners. I, I mentioned to a coworker today that you were going to be on again, and I mentioned your name, and he said he was on he was he was on one of your other episodes. So <laughs> a lot of people are listening, and uh, um, you're like I said, you're quickly becoming a favorite there. So uh, I hope you do this many many times uh, in the future there. But uh, thank you for coming on and. Um, 
we'll go ahead and, and close and uh, then we'll say our goodbyes uh, off the air here and uh, so thank you again for coming on and uh, ladies and gentlemen Pastor Stephen Stover thank you guys Crusader.com. The comments 